Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome. We're in a series called, Who Does God Say That I Am? And I want to ask you a question. Who does God say that you are? Who does God say that you are? Is your identity found in your grades, your popularity, or your athletic ability? Maybe your ACT or your SAT score, or how many hours you're taking in one semester? Is your identity found in whether you're married or single? Maybe what your position is, or your career, or your annual salary? Where is your identity found? How do you say that you are? And who do you say that you are? Is it your most recent blood test, your, your basic metabolic, metabolic panel? Does that tell you who you are? Or maybe you have to wait for your health and ancestry results from 23andMe. Sometimes that actually does tell us who we are <laughs> if we find out. Who does God say that you are? Let me ask you a question. Does it matter? Does it matter to you who God says you are? Does it matter to you? Or have you been thinking so long one direction that is hard? It's just hard to think in a different direction. So we know that how we think determines how we feel, and how we feel usually determines what we do. And so if it's kind of a gloomy day and it's a little bit rainy, you just want to, oh, it's kind of yucky outside. I'm just going to stay home. Now, none of you thought that this morning because you're here, right? You're here. Maybe you did think it was gloomy and yucky, but you decided you were going to get up and come to church, and here you are. Let's talk this morning about who God says you are. It's really important how we think is really important. There's the old illustration and the old story of the guy who couldn't run a four-minute mile, every guy until I think, what, the 1950s. And then this guy ran a mile in under four minutes. Was his name Roger Bannister? Was that his, I think that was his name. He ran a mile in under four minutes. And within 12 months, dozens and dozens of people ran a sub-four-minute mile. Why? Because they thought differently. They didn't think it could happen before that. In fact, they were told it can't happen. Nobody could run a mile in under four minutes. But somebody could. Oh, really? Well, then I can. And dozens and dozens and dozens ran under a four-minute mile. What do you think is possible for you, or what do you think is impossible for you? That's in the realm of like doing and achieving, and we can get all, you know, self-help and, and, and motivational speaker, but that's, that's what we do. How about who you are? How about rethinking who you are? Because the world will tell us who we are. We don't want to listen to the world. We will tell us who we are. Sometimes we don't want to listen to us. But when God tells us who we are, that's how we have to think. Because when we think about how God says we are, then we start acting the way God says we should act. And that's real life. And that is freedom. And let me ask you, do you feel freedom in your relationship with God? 
Are you worried about your relationship with God? Are you stressed about it sometimes? Are you disappointed with it? Or do you feel freedom? Ah, oh, phew. Like when you write that check and you pay that bill, you don't have to think about it anymore, right? Just the, the freedom of a relationship unhindered. Or does it feel like there's a war going on inside of you? You have the best of intentions to please God, but then you don't. And every time you don't, the distance between you and God grows further and further apart. Because you know that your failure and your sin, in fact, you believe, you think that that failure and sin drives a wedge between you and God. There's, there, there's, that, there's that good you that wants to please God, but then there's the real you that shows up. And, ah, oh, again, I have not lived up to my own expectations. I have come in with failure again. I yield to temptation. I never quite seem to be good enough. You get so close, and then you fail, and God has to turn away, shaking his head in disappointment because, once again, you haven't done what you should do. But God says this, and this is the, the title slide. We can put that title slide up. I am free in Jesus Christ. God says you're free. In fact, Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, he said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, don't put yourselves in handcuffs again by this, this, this handcuff bondage situation. So don't do that. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So we're going to talk about that this morning, and it's so crazy the journey that Paul takes us on. He says that in Galatians 5.1, but how he gets there is another story. So let me pray for you this morning as we get started. Father in heaven, the people in this room here today, Lord, we want to hear from you. So I pray that you would speak to our souls through the still, small voice of your spirit. God, we need strength and we need wisdom. We need encouragement and hope. We need love, Lord. We need true friendship. So please, Lord, give to each one this morning whatever they need the most. And God, for ones who have come this morning just totally drained, perhaps very discouraged, may they receive these words of Jesus when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. We worship you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Sometimes I fly to Buffalo because south of Buffalo in West Seneca, my sister lives, and she picks me up. We go to her house, and she's got this brown lab, chocolate lab named Hershey. And uh, Hershey has one of those electric collars with those invisible fences. And it was so funny the first time I saw that, you know, how they only run so far, and they'll run across you, and then they'll just stop, and there'll be like nothing there. Like, why are they stopping? Well, because they've got the electric collar on and there's the invisible fence and they'll only go so far. But when they take that collar off, 
The dog still only goes that far. He doesn't ever want, he'll go down the driveway and then he'll stop. He won't go any farther. But when my sister puts the leash on him, oh baby, put the leash on, it's time for a walk. We're going to take a walk. (laughs) And she'll, she'll take him down the street for a walk. And when she gets to the park and she lets him off the leash, then he's free. And he runs and he jumps and he plays and he rolls in the grass. He's free because it's for freedom that she has taken him to the park. There's never one time that, and, I, and we go for walks and half the time we have to take Hershey. I'd rather she didn't take Hershey so we can just walk and talk. But once we get to the park, it's okay because she takes him off the leash and he just does his thing because he's free. I've never one time seen him when she's let him off the leash where he's just stood there or sat there. No, he runs, he's free. And Paul is reminding the Galatian believers, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Don't act like you still got the leash on. You don't act like you still have the electric collar. The fence isn't there. It's the, the, the switch is off. It's gone. You're free. And yet the Galatians, they weren't having it very easily. In fact, there's the interesting thing. Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. Galatians was the first one. And he has to write to them about how they come to God because they, they, they go backwards in their thinking. They go backwards. But then when he writes to the people in Philippi and in Ephesus and in Corinth and Thessalonica and all, all these other letters, it's so funny. He keeps going back to the same thing again. He just writes it a little different way, but he says the same stuff. And in Galatians, those first four chapters, he goes all the way back to Genesis to make his point. Why? Because the people weren't thinking right. He had to to help them think through this thing so that when he got to chapter five, verse one, he could say, this is why you've been set free. It is for freedom. You need to enjoy your freedom. Don't go around acting like you've got the leash, the handcuffs, the collar still on. So we have to go back, and I ask you to take your Bibles, because it's not gonna be on the screen, but Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the, in the Old Testament, we're not going to spend a lot of time. We're going to go through this quick. But it's the foundation that Paul, that Paul is arguing from, that his readers understood. Because they were, they were, most of them were Jewish believers. And Jesus came and he changed things for the Jews. But so many of them didn't accept the change. They didn't accept what Jesus brought. And so Paul is taking them back, and he's going to talk about two characters in the Old Testament and two covenants. And believe it or not, these two characters and these two covenants affect every one of us here today. And every one of us sometimes acts like one character with one covenant, and every one of us sometimes acts like the other character in the other covenant. So the first character is Abraham, or Abram, in Genesis 12. And it says there in just the first three verses, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'm going to make of you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Now you've come through the creation, the, the fall of mankind in sin, uh, the flood, the murder of, uh, of Abel by Cain, and all this, and you get up to, you get up to chapter 12, and God decides to call somebody, and out of that somebody, he's going to make a great nation, and he's going to bless everyone else on the planet through this person, and he chooses Abraham. And it start, he starts out as Abram, um, and he changes his name to Abraham, but we get two, um, two chapters over in chapter 15, because Abraham's story is in chapter 12, 15, and a few verses in chapter 22. Actually, it's all those chapters, but we're not looking at all those verses. Chapter 15, verse 1, says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. The first of many times God's going to tell people not to be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Paul's going to grab onto that little picture right there. He's going to use that as an illustration of you and me. But then he goes on. It says in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Your family's going to be as numerous as as the stars in the sky. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. Paul will go back to that statement over and over and over to teach us that it's by faith, it's just by trusting in God that we please him in no other way. Just scooch over to Genesis 22. This is the story of Abraham being asked by God to offer his son Isaac on, as, on the mountain as a sacrifice. He goes through that, and God, God stops him from killing Isaac, his son, from sacrificing him. He finds a ram in the thicket, and he uses that animal and offers that as a sacrifice instead. And he says in verse, in verse uh, 16, God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Genesis 22 is Abraham's James 2 moment. In James 2 is the statement, faith without works is dead, or faith without, without works is in vain, being dead. Abraham showed that his faith in God was true because he was, he was ready to obey God. And God says, because of that, I now, I am going to bless you. And God made what was a unilateral covenant with Abraham only dependent on God's character and God's word, not dependent on anything Abraham would do. 
from that day forward. It was a unilateral, one-sided covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham is the first character, and that's the first covenant. It's a foundational thing in the Bible. You can read through the New Testament if you don't understand that God made a covenant with a guy, and it was, it was one-sided with no conditions, you won't understand so much of the teaching in the New Testament. So that's, that's just the, what's a foundation, it's a cornerstone of the teaching of the scriptures. Now there's another character, and there's another covenant. The other character, the second one, is Moses. And I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Some of you would know that Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are listed. But Genesis then into Exodus chapter 19 in verse 1, they get to the mountain. Moses is about to go up and he's about to get the commandments, the law. He's about to hear from God. He's going to be up there for a while. Then he's going to come down and he's going to speak to the people. But they get to the mountain on the first day of the third month, chapter 19, verse 1, after the Israelites left Egypt. And on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel encamped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. And here it is. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses, what does he do? He goes back and summons the elders of the people And he set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, and here's what they said. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Anybody ever tell you, do do what you said you were going to (laughs) do? Probably only a hundred times, right? Unless you do what you say you're going to do. And the people said... We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So this this covenant that God made through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the law, was two-sided. God said, if you do this, I will do this. And then the people said, well, we will do that, so we'll expect you to do this. And as you go through the history books in the Old Testament, and as you go through the prophets, you see the result of how the Israelites carried out their obedience. It was like this. Obey, disobey, obey, disobey, 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 obey, disobey, disobey. It was was crazy. And as you read the Old Testament prophets, you see judgment brought upon the people for their disobedience. Why? Because they entered into this two-sided covenant, this bilateral agreement with God. So there's a covenant with Abraham. It was unilateral, it was unilateral and unconditional. It was dependent upon God. There was a covenant with Moses. It was bilateral and it was conditional. Which one do you live under? 
Think, yeah, think about that one. Which one do you live under? In a lot of churches, us pastors, we preach the second one. You got to do this, and you better not do that, and you better not do this, and you better do that. Thus saith the Lord. And that's fine as long as it's in context. As long as people aren't led to believe that if they do these things, they will be pleasing to God. Because that's getting the cart before the horse. And that never works. Horses, they don't like to push carts. They like to pull carts. So getting the, getting the horse before the cart would be to understand the Abrahamic covenant. So, Galatians chapter 1. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. We're just going to look at a couple verses this morning, and then we'll continue with it next week. Galatians chapter 1. Paul is going to tell the people, um, I have preached to you the good news, and I can't believe how quickly you've walked away from it. I told you you were free, and how quickly you get that electric collar, and you put that electric collar back on and you flip on the switch, and you live according to it. In verse five of, uh, verse six of chapter one, Paul says, I am freaked out that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. I am, I can't believe how quickly you're deserting the one who called you, God. Perhaps God the Holy Spirit, who called you to live by what? By the grace of Christ. If you live with somebody who's really kind to you, who, who shows up for you all the time, who provides you with what you need, with food, clothing, and shelter, who forgives you all the time, and nothing is dependent on how you act or what you do, and you realize that I really want to please this person because they're so kind. They don't never hold. They never hold a grudge. They they always provide for me. Uh, they're, they're just they're just like the perfect person to live with. I have a desire to please that person. You realize that whether you do things really well or whether you mess up once in a while, it doesn't seem to matter. They still love you anyway. It never seems to affect the relationship. That's the grace of that person. That's living in the grace of a person like that. And that's, that's, the, that's what the grace of Christ is like for us. So no matter what we do, Jesus is there ready to forgive. Why? Because he paid for all those sins. He's the one who paid for all of those sins. And so he doesn't hold it against us. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, I, I can't believe you're just so quick to walk away and you're turning to, he calls, a different gospel. A different good news, which he says, it's really, it's no good news at all. It's really no gospel at all. Anything but this is not right. He goes, but even, uh, he says, evidently some people, they're throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, hey, hey, even if an angel from heaven shows up on your front step and preaches a good news gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. He says, as we have already told you and already said, I'm going to say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel 
other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So I'm asking you this morning, which gospel are you living under? Are you living under the law of Moses where you've got to obey this and obey that and follow this and follow that? Because as, as Paul writes Galatians, he explains how he came to Jesus. He explains how he was in the wilderness for a number of years and the risen Christ appeared to him and taught him and, and relationally downloaded all kinds of teaching and all kinds of understanding. And he was able to take all the Old Testament that he had memorized so much of, and he was able to, to superimpose over the top of it the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And he saw how Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the law. Because Jesus was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, because he said, and through your offspring, all the world will be blessed, and that offspring was Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, because when Jesus comes, he says, I'm not here to break and to throw out the law. I'm here to what? I am here to fulfill it. So Jesus came as a man, as a human. He came, and he totally lived out the law, the law of Moses, the law that if somebody could be perfect, they could come to God on their own merits. But nobody could, nobody could. Then Jesus shows up, 100% human being, 100% God, never denying any of his deity, never denying any of his humanity, and he shows us what it's like for the law to be embodied in flesh. And what a human being surrounded by sinful people would act like and what he would be like if he could actually follow the law, it was like the living, breathing law of Moses who walked among us. Jesus did that. And Paul is going to write here in Galatians and in his other letters, and he keeps having to go to this one issue. It's how people think that God thinks about them. How people think that God thinks about them and what people think that God says about them. And he keeps going back to this. He goes, he goes at it in Ephesians and, and in Philippians and in Colossians. And he, in all of his letters, he's got to deal with this issue. So if Paul were around today and if he were to write a letter to us this morning and you were to get it and read it, it would deal with this issue because we have a problem with it. We don't receive the forgiveness that God gives us. We just, because we know ourselves. We know we're guilty, guilty. We know that. We know there's not much good in us. There's a little bit, but we know that other part of us too. And it's hard for us to receive the freedom and the forgiveness that God wants to give us. There's, there's a problem with that though. The problem is that if we don't forgive ourselves by receiving God's forgiveness, we we don't forgive others very well. So that's why you've got churches filled with people, and you've got factions in division, and you've got, uh, you've got cliques and groups, and you've got people that sit on this side, and people that sit on this side. Then you've got the wishy-washy ones that sit in the middle. They don't want to choose sides. They like to go back and forth. But why do we have this? To the extent that we receive the forgiveness from God, 
in God's forgiveness and believe it, we can forgive ourselves. And then to the extent that we can forgive ourselves and, and live in the freedom that God gives, to that extent, we can forgive others. Paul writes in another letter, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. To the extent that you receive acceptance from Jesus, you can accept others. Are you having a hard time forgiving other people? Are you really judgmental and you just, you can't really accept other people for the way they are? You, you need to forgive yourself. You need to receive forgiveness from God. And you need to extend that forgiveness to the people around you. And the truth is, when you live by the law, oh, look at that, I went right up to it, Old Testament. When you live by the law as though this was the way you came to God, you're never gonna be able to live this way. You're trying to live this way, but you can't live this way because you can't live this way. All the characters in the Old Testament teach us that. But when you come to God by the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, and you for no logical, moral, ethical reason that you can imagine just receive the forgiveness that God gives us, all of a sudden it's a lot easier to live this way. Because you don't have to, you just get to. See, when you receive the love that Jesus, that God shows us through his son and the power of the indwelling spirit that's talked about in the New Testament, all of a sudden you've got the wherewithal to live the way God commanded people to live in the Old Testament, but they never could. And Paul's gonna take these two characters and these two covenants, he's gonna use them to illustrate the fallacy and the, the misguided thinking that the Galatians had that would lead them to want to stay in the cell, stay at home, keep the switch of the invisible fence on and keep their choke electric collar on and not want to go anywhere because they can't. Well, well yes, they can. Yes, they can. And, and then Paul says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, don't put the choke collar back on. Don't put it back on. Don't keep the leash tethered to your collar. You're free. Run, play, roll in the grass. You're free. So Galatians 2, 3, and 4, read it in the New Living Translation or read it in the message paraphrase. Read those three chapters. We're gonna look at some of that next week. It's incredible because, again, he goes back to the foundation of the two characters and the two covenants. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, one-sided, unconditional. Moses, the Mosaic covenant, bilateral, conditional. And the lower one leads us to the upper one. The law of Moses leads us to the grace of Jesus Christ. It's, it's fantastic. This morning, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so if you reach in your seat, underneath your seat, you'll find one of these in a little cup holder. And they're, they're, they're trick ones because you have to pull the clear wrapper off the top and you can get to the bread. 
but then when you pull the second one back, you're gonna get grape juice on your shirt. I'm just telling you, unless you're really careful. Then if you're really careful, you'll get it on your neighbor's shirt. It's going on somebody's shirt. It's just the way it is. But let's talk about this just for a minute. Let's talk about this little thing here. Because you go back to when the law of Moses was given and the people got out of Egypt, but how'd they get out of Egypt? After the 10 plagues. And remember the 10th plague? Remember that it was the death of the firstborn and that God told the people of Israel, get a lamb, a spotless, perfect lamb, and take that lamb. Is, does everybody have one or are we, are we short some? Who doesn't have one? Okay, you're on your own there, Eldon. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Oh, oh, now look at the, look at, we're sharing. Who's got an extra one? Oh, look at that. Who, who else needs one? Who else needs one? Everybody got one? All right, cool. So he said, take the lamb, cook it, kill it, cook it, and eat it all that night and take the blood and put it on the doorposts. And when the death angel comes, when he sees the blood, he will pass over your home. See, it's so crazy that way back in the book of Exodus is stuff that's gonna happen way into the New Testament. The Bible, even though it's, it's 1,500 years apart from the beginning to the end, it's just one story. It's one story, the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He died for your sins. And all he says is, believe in me, believe in me, and you'll have everlasting life. He said that God, God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever would just trust in him, he wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. He or she, men, women, boys, girls. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, just before he ascended to heaven, he was crucified, he was resurrected. And just before he ascended to heaven, he said to go into all the world to his disciples and make more disciples. And just before he went to the cross, he had a final Passover meal with his disciples. And he said, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He said to them, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. What was he saying? If you don't believe that I'm the one who takes your sins away, there is no other offering for sin. And for as long as you observe communion together, the Lord's Supper, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes back. So what we're proclaiming this morning with just a little wafer, it's the body of Jesus, put on the tree, put on the cross, crucified in my place and in your place for our sins. We remember we're gonna take it together. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. And Lord, we're here this morning. We are sinners. And we're in the hands of a gracious God. 
We receive your grace and your mercy. We receive your forgiveness for our sins, which are many. We believe that we're saints, that we are a chosen people, that we are a royal priesthood, that we come to you on the basis of the work of Jesus. God, if there's somebody in here this morning who's never said to you, Lord Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. I want to be clean. I want to be a child of God. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak to their heart? Would you let them know that they are loved, that they can be forgiven by trusting in Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God, I remember hearing those words as a kid. I wanted to be saved. God, I pray that every person this morning in this room would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He took the cup in that last Passover meal with his disciples, and he said that this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement, the Mosaic covenant is going to be fulfilled. This is the new agreement. It's again a unilateral, one-sided, unconditional covenant. In his blood, he said, I'm going to shed my blood for your sins. If you believe in me, you're going to have it all. He said, drink of it. Father, we worship you. Lord Jesus, we worship you as our Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We embrace you, the one who indwells us. Open our hearts to you this week, Lord. Help us to love you, to receive your forgiveness, and then take that love and share it with others, forgiving and accepting others, just as you have forgiven and accepted us. In Jesus' name, amen.